and a pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. My name's Sam Lebowitz. His name is Jack Hendon, as always. It's episode 20 of the podcast. That feels like a lot for us, but it's been a dream come true to be able to talk Mets with you guys week in, week out. 20 episodes down. Jack, how are we feeling on this January the 17th? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm, uh, I've been having a lot of fun doing this. It's weird to think that we've made it to 20, but, you know, there's a... Uh... About 80 more till we get to really, you know, really get to, you know, celebrate. So I'm, I'm chilling. What about you? I'm excited for us to hit 25 because Jack and I have been planning a little something special when we hit the 25. Yeah. So that's going to be fun. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to talk about what exactly that is yet, but keep in mind we have something planned. Before we hop into the business things, I just real quick want to ask you guys one thing at home that we've never asked you before. If you guys can please leave a review and a rating on the podcast that would be very much appreciative we've never actually asked you guys to do that but we think that if you guys started doing that it could be very helpful for the growth of the podcast now let's hop in now that i'm assuming you guys have already left your comments your rates your ranks whatever we're going to talk about arbitration before we get into things because there's not a whole lot of concrete mets news to talk about this week besides arbitration and it's come to my attention and Jack's attention that most casual fans don't really know how the arbitration process works. Uh, so we apologize if you're not among that group, if you know exactly how arbitration works, and this is going to be redundant for you. But basically earlier this week was the deadline for arbitration figures to be filed. And the way that that works is players that are eligible uh, with three years of service time or more, but under six years of service time, meaning they've never been a free agent before, are eligible for arbitration, which means they give a number, their team gives a number, and they they basically have to find an agreement between those two numbers by a certain time. Uh, and that's going to be their contract for the upcoming season. Uh, if they can't find an agreement, they go to arbitration. That's why you see these contracts that are you know always reported as they agree to a contract to avoid arbitration because arbitration is a hearing. It's a legal trial in which both sides argue points of view about what the player should be paid and a panel of arbitrators decide which figure they get paid. There's no negotiation at that point. They get one or the other. And the Mets had a number of players that they had to reach arbitration deals with to avoid arbitration. They got all of those done except one, Jack, if you want to continue on from there. Yeah. Uh, so the basic roundup is that they saved quite a bit of money. Uh, and usually that's kind of like, I mean, it's good for the Mets because they do have, I think, a little bit more flexibility. Not a lot of flexibility, but a little bit more to spend. They basically saved uh, something in the two to two and a half million dollar range. Ultimately, they get to this point by sort of nickel and diming their players. It's something that every team sort of does and it's for the, you know, the better of the the front office and the team plans moving forward. Uh, but among a few people who took some pay cuts, uh, there's Brandon Nimmo, who is making about $500,000 less than was projected. And these projections are uh, done through MLB trade rumors, fan graphs, a number of, uh, of, of pretty credible sites when it comes to the finances of this uh Guillermo Heredia took a $500,000 pay cut Dom Smith took uh just a little bit north of a million dollars less than what had been projected of him so he's making about two point uh 
five five million dollars, uh, give or take. Michael Conforto took about a million under what he was expected to uh, to make. Um, and then between Miguel Castro, Robert Gesellman, Seth Lugo, and Steven Matz, they're saving another like five hundred thousand dollars. The only players that they really went over the hump for were Francisco Lindor and Edwin Diaz. Uh, and I mean, so yeah, that, that sort of, I think amounts to, yeah, two to two and a half million dollars in savings. They can put that in any direction. Uh, some important notes, not every player is put through this process. Uh, players that sign contracts, you know, as free agents or they sign extensions, they get entirely new contract structures because they've, surpass the point of being under team control. So like Jacob deGrom is never going to be in these arbitration discussions ever again. Carlos Carrasco was not involved in this. James McCann, who just signed a deal with the Mets, Trevor May, they're not involved in this. Dylan Batances is not. Robinson Cano obviously isn't, although he's not making any money this year anyway. Uh, and then you have a few players who are not yet arbitration eligible. So for example, Pete Alonso, Jeff McNeil, Luis Guillorme, uh, Tomas Nito, they don't actually get the opportunity to even negotiate yet because they haven't been in the league long enough. Um, yeah. And then there's super two, which I, I myself am not like totally clear on in, in terms of how that's done. Sam, can you explain that to them? Because there are a few cases where the pay doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but super two can kind of explain it, I think. Right. So super two is a, is a term that we, can use to describe a certain type of player uh, in the arbitration kind of sphere. Basically what it means is normally a player is arbitration eligible after their third season. And we'll talk more about the scaling of arbitration and why like Seth Lugo is only making $2 million this year, even though obviously he's like borderline elite when he's a reliever, he should be making more than that. Uh, we'll talk about that after I talk about super two, but basically what the super two what Super 2 means is if a player uh, is between two and three years of service time, but they are in the top, I believe, 22% of service time for players who debuted in their season, they are eligible for arbitration after their second season rather than after their third. So Dom Smith, I believe is the only Super 2 first-time arbitration-eligible player that the Mets had. Noah Syndergaard was a Super 2 guy. Uh, Super 2 is is it's pretty common. It's easy to confuse that with, like, service time manipulation. Service time manipulation is uh, when you keep a player down in the minor leagues for two weeks, so you get an extra year of service, of, of uh, you know, team control. So usually a player hits free agency after six seasons – but if you're able to keep them down for that first couple weeks of their rookie year or whatever, uh, you get a seventh season before they hit free agency. Um, Super two is different from that. Super two, there's no like hard set deadline until after the season is over. That deadline, that that super two date is usually in like mid to late May, I believe. Um, the MLB.com uh, page that you know defines super two uses, I think, Dexter Fowler as an example from when he came up. Uh, basically it means you hit arbitration a year earlier, uh, which means you get expensive quicker, which teams, obviously they, they want to avoid super two, but it's not, you know, you'd rather have that extra year of service time, extra year of team control rather than avoid arbitration for another year. So it's not really something that teams go out of their way to avoid because it's a lot easier to just accrue the extra year of 
team control by keeping them down two weeks rather than keeping them down two months to avoid super two. That's the best way I think I can explain. Yeah. That, that makes, that makes enough sense. Uh, and yeah, the other thing that I think point out is I guess the two last bits of housekeeping is that Michael Conforto and Francisco Lindor, we both acknowledge, we acknowledge that they uh, accepted their, their deals. These are just for this year. Uh, these are not extensions. They still have to negotiate if they want new contracts. Um, Francisco Lindor has said to this point that he's willing to negotiate a new contract, uh, but not once the season starts. So the Mets obviously have a, a, a timer on that. And then I think the other thing that tends to be forgotten about is that these are not necessarily binding deals yet. There's no guarantee that these players are going to get roster spots just because they've been given these uh you know, revised, agreed upon, negotiated deals. Uh, so, for example, I think someone we've talked about a little bit to this point is Steven Matz. Um, the Mets could cut him in spring training, hypothetically. Uh, and if they did that before the end of it, despite having agreed to this deal, they would save uh, about $4 million of the $5 million that they've currently agreed to with him because of arbitration stipulations and usually players don't get cut at this stage either if teams wanted to cut them they would have done it in in, in december like that's what the mets did with chase and shreve they said we don't want to have to negotiate giving you more money uh because we you know we we think we can fill that spot more cheaply or also we just you know we, we for whatever reason so that's one player is getting on tendered uh or they get traded if teams don't really want to have to negotiate uh or reconcile that conflict like with angel pagan like 10 years ago now i'm pretty sure that's why they traded him to the giants during the winter meetings was because they didn't want to have to not tender him and they were coming yeah. up on that yeah the first step in the process of arbitration is the non-tender deadline is deciding if you even want to try to avoid arbitration with these guys in the first place the only player that the mets like could have non-tendered there's two really they could have non-tendered besides Mats because you already touched on him they could have non-tendered because they could have non-tendered heredia but they didn't, so they avoided arbitration with those guys. Then the other thing that we just want to touch on very briefly before we talk about J.D. Davis is the scaling of arbitration, and it's the reason why some guys don't make as much as they should. So, uh, for instance, Juan Soto. Juan Soto was a first-year arbitration-eligible player this year, and he made either – it was the record for first-year arbitration of, of someone who had, like, never won MVP before – or he was very, very close to that record. He made about 8 million, 8, 8.5, somewhere in that range. And people were saying, oh my God, Juan Soto, Juan Soto should be getting paid way more than that. He's like a 25 to $30 million talent at this stage in his career. He should be getting paid way more than that. This is such a great deal for the Nationals. No, that's just because he's a first time arbitration eligible player. Players don't get paid at this point in their career based off skill or talent. They get paid based off service time. So if you're ARB1, keep in mind that this is it is scaling, so he will make more next year when he's arbitration 2, and then a more the year after when he's arbitration 3. Um, but as an ARB1 guy, you're just not going to make as much as you should if you're already a superstar, because there's a precedent set. So that's, that's kind of why, if you're looking at those deals, if you're looking at Seth Lugo only making uh, 2 mil, or so, or Dom Smith only making two, two and a half mil, even though they, they're coming off really strong seasons and they're very good players. It's not because they're getting underpaid. It's because the system is whack and kind of broken 
and is designed to keep these younger players underpaid because it's it's designed to pay based on service time. That's why once you get to six years of service time, you can go out and get your bag. But it's really, really hard to make it to free agency in baseball. Um, and and without- yeah, I mean, the, the other thing that's whack is just the arbitration hearings that happen. Uh, and this is probably I think a good place for us to talk about J.D. Davis, because so he's projected, according to, the, you know, the websites we cited, you know, MLB trade rumors, fan graphs. Uh, I think sport track might also do projections. But Davis is is basically projected to make about just under three million dollars. Uh, he got promoted in like late 2017, I think. So that's sort of where he stands on the uh, the scaling side of it. Uh, but arbitration hearings are are a real bummer because players can't get cut. Uh, you know, they can't like refuse their whatever contract they land on. And these hearings, they're facilitated by a third party, but that third party almost always sides with the organization. And it always comes at the conclusion of, a lengthy hearing uh, that the players usually have to take part in. It's not like they can do this through their agents. They have to be there. Uh, and they basically have to argue with a team lawyer, team representative about uh, why they are or are not, you know, worth the money that they're asking for. And as you can imagine, as a player, that's, it's not that fun. It's, it's pretty lousy. In fact, Marcus Stroman went through this with Toronto. Uh, and I think it, played a pretty significant role in his, I think, sort of rejection of playing there past his contract year. Like he just, it was such a, you know, shaky experience for him. I don't know if, uh, if, if I have much more beyond that story, but it, it's tough. And hopefully JD doesn't come out of this feeling like worse than most players do because it, it, it is really hard. This happened to Wilmer Flores like five years ago as well. If you think being told that you were traded when you weren't traded isn't like an emotional thing, it's a lot worse to be Wilmer Flores and be in a room and be told over like a however long the meetings are, you can't field, you can only hit left-handed pitching. Um, you know, we have better players they basically throw every Twitter argument at you in a legal proceeding. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty good way to turn players against the system. Yeah. Uh, speaking about JD specifically, uh, before I get into my thoughts on like the hearings, cause they are kind of crappy for the player. Uh, JD, I believe is also a super two player. Um, the Mets filed at 2.1 mil. And I think JD filed at like 2.45. So it's a $300,000 or so difference, which doesn't seem like that big of a number, but the projection, like you said, 2.9, JD is already willing to take a pay cut beneath that at 2.45 or so. And the Mets only want to pay him 2.1. So it's not, you know, it doesn't seem irreconcilable, but it, apparently it was. And so they're going to head to that hearing. Uh, it's rough, man. It is rough. I want you, you touched on it. You, you hit it right on the head. It's painful. I obviously haven't been inside of the room. Nobody has that. That's not a, a player, an agent, or one of these team lawyers uh, or an arbitrator, but the players just sit there and take it. They, they get, bashed with every statistic that could be framed in a negative light 
for hours. They are every similar player that is making less than them is getting brought up. Every similar player that uh, has, you know, a similar career trajectory and, and, and falls off the table after making, you know, some money they're going to bring up. It's rough. And you touched on Stroman, like Stroman was very vocal online after he had a hearing with the Blue Jays where he was just like, man, this isn't right. It Having to hear not only a third party bashing you, they're used to that, especially in New York on, on sports media, on sports radio. They're used to some random caller, Mike and Massapequa calling and saying, you, you J.D. Davis sucks. They're used to that. Yeah. But they're not used to the team that employs them, yeah. bashing them in a public setting. They're not used to that. And, and like, yeah, we don't hear what's get said in that room, but we can imagine we talk about JD all the time. We talked about him for weeks talking about that. We would, you know, we would trade him in a second. We don't think he's very good. You know, uh, he can't feel at any position. He, he can't hit a breaking ball unless it's a hanger. He can't really hit velocity unless it's up in the zone. This is just off the top of my head. Um, he's slow as hell. He's got a head like a Lego brick. Like, imagine being in a courtroom and having to hear that, but like on a vastly more specific yeah. scale. Yeah, and and people, yeah, and it's like it's well, it's it can't be that bad. Well, like no, it can be because these teams need to win their cases. They need to make as as like hard of an argument as they can against paying these guys. It's not like it's you know. I mean, again, just as a disclaimer. I've never been in, in, in those rooms. I'm not a professional athlete. I've never been a professional athlete, but I think I know enough about the way that, you know, people try and win legal cases to understand that, you know, if there's an, even a remote argument to be made against giving someone, you know, their money, especially when you are the person giving out the money, the way the teams are, it's, it's, you know, it, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a losing situation. And I think for a lot of players, even if they think they're worth more money, they probably don't even want to go into arbitration. Like they'll take part of taking the pay cut. The, the relief of it is not having to go through a proceeding like that one. Yeah. It's why do we think that uh, the reporters use the language that they use on deadline day for the, these kind of deals? They say they avoided arbitration with this contract. You see that phrase over and over again on deadline day and in the weeks leading up to it when some of these contracts do tend to trickle out ahead of time. They came to an agreement to avoid arbitration because it is something you want to avoid. Yeah. You don't want to have to bash your player. Yeah. And you don't want to have, and as a player, you don't want to get bashed. Imagine having to go back out on the field after you sat through that hearing. It happens right before spring training too. Mm -hmm. So imagine having to go to spring training, compete for a job, because usually the guys that, that hit arbitration like this are not the guys who are like stars on the team. It is usually squabbles over a million or less. It's guys yeah. like J.D. Davis who are still probably going to have to compete for a job at some in some capacity. Mm -hmm. And in having to put, you know, having to have confidence in yourself, knowing that you're the team that employs you is capable of coming up with this argument against you it's difficult to have confidence in yourself when you know that the team doesn't have, you know, at least doesn't seem like it has confidence in you. I, you know, I'm sure they, they do have, if they're going to put JD out there, if they're not going to trade JD, if they're going to play him, I'm sure they have confidence in JD, but mm -hmm. 
to JD, all that's ringing in his, in his mind is the argument against him. And that could fuel him to a point, but it could also, it could also weigh down psychologically on him. It, you don't want to go to these hearings. I was personally expecting a lot more hearings. I, I believe one of the reporters, one of the national reporters had said ahead of time, expect a lot, expect a lot of arbitration this year. Uh, because teams are being stingy. Teams don't want to pay guys. They're going to squabble over small amounts of money. That wasn't the case. We got about a normal amount of, of arbitration hearings. I think we got 13 across the league. And, and JD is the only one from the Mets. The Mets had a lot of, of these contracts to, to negotiate. They had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 10, 11 of these, including JD. And they got 10 out of 11. Yeah. So that's, that's good. They would have preferred, obviously, not to go to arbitration with JD, but it is what it is. And if the Mets do trade JD Davis, you know the Cubs or whoever they send him off to, they'll have to they'll have to deal with the arbitration hearing with JD. So this is something that they can still trade JD, even though they're in this process with him. Like it's just more messy than you'd like when you're negotiating yeah. a contract with a player, and it doesn't, you know, it tends to foster some bad blood in between the player and the organization. It's not. You know, it's not a death sentence on the player's time with that team, but it usually means the first chance they get to switch uniforms, they're going to. Yeah, they might. Um, so we should, I think, move on. Uh, just looking now at the team as a whole, uh, we again consulted Christopher Soto for this information. He's our resident accountant. does a great job. You guys should follow him if you're not. Um the Mets are right now at about $32 million beneath luxury tax, give or take 30 to $32 million. Uh, that includes a deal with Jose Martinez at the Inc. this week. Uh, what do we think about that one? Is that, is, is this good or? Yeah, it's one of those like upper uh, level expensive depth deals that the Mets would never ever make before mm-hmm. Steve Cohen took over. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm here for it. Uh, I like it, especially if there's a DH. I think honestly, there's a spot for him on the major league roster. So long as he never, ever, ever puts on a glove. Yeah. Um, he can start against lefties at the DH spot. If you don't want Dom in the field or, you know, whatever for those, for those situations, you can put Pete at first base. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's making, it's a base of $1 million and he gets an extra 500,000 if he's in the majors, I believe. Uh, and it's only, you know, that that's 200 or so thousand, 300,000 if he's in the minors. It's a, it's a weird kind of contract. It's a split deal. He's on the 40-man roster, but it's not a guaranteed major league contract, I think. I think uh, it is guaranteed. I think it's – it's. I think he's on the active roster right now. They gave him a spot on the uh, the 26-man, I'm pretty sure. Like, Brandon Drury isn't. I think that it's about the base salary. Like, at a million dollars, that's uh, that's big league, but, like, $500,000 would be minor league. The incentive is actually less – uh, for him, it's less than the base salary. I think the expectation is that uh, he's going to start on the active roster. And if he plays badly, they just release him. I uh, think it comes with a minor league option. I think because they were. Well, he has like, options. That is true. He does have options. So it, it is split in terms of he can be sent down to the minors. Yeah. It's um, weird, too, because he's like 32 years old. Yeah, he came um, to the league a little late. Yeah. But. But he hits. He he didn't hit this year. But again, we talked about it time and time again while talking about evaluating players in 2020. Short season players mm-hmm. just sometimes they just can't 
get going. And if you look before 2020, the dude has like a 915 career OPS against left-handed pitching. He rakes the Cardinals. They tried him at first. They definitely tried him in the outfield and kudos to them for trying. And it never, never worked. Mm-hmm. I remember Keith Hernandez would just lay it on him. Just yeah. bash the guy every time the Mets played the Cardinals about how he's one of the, the worst defenders Keith had ever seen, no matter what position he was playing. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was opening day two, I guess three years ago now, when we played the Cardinals. And Martinez made, like, he was a first base, and he made, like, a, a, a fielding error and a throwing error uh, in a span of, like, two innings. And Keith was just, like, beside himself in the booth. Uh, but, yeah, to your point about – 2020 and evaluating players he also got traded uh he got traded to the rays during the off season but then during the middle of the season because he wasn't hacking it he got traded again to the chicago cubs um he was he was part of the, the randy rosarena trade he was it was him and um a rosarena for matthew liberatory yeah uh but he was like the big league piece that was going to come a rosarena wasn't entirely ready yet but the promise was that this was going to be like because I think the Rays had lost Jesus Aguilar that offseason. So they needed someone who could hit left-handed pitching and play the, you know, play first base. Uh, but he cannot field. It should be stated right now. Uh, he's, 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 he's a pretty bad butcher. Uh, this is somebody that you give a bat to. Uh, you let him tear apart left-handed pitching. It's cool like that. I think he probably has more of a split against lefties than J.D. Davis does. And in fact, I think adding Jose Martinez – uh, gives the Mets a bit more leeway than they had before to actually trade J.D. Davis if it comes to that and they need to make a deal for somebody else, you know, to reinforce either around the infield or in center field. Um, I think that, yeah, Martinez probably a worse defender, but also at this stage, you probably don't want to be putting J.D. Davis on the infield either. So it, it's it's at least in the interim, a fine replacement. I mean, the Mets should really be looking to just like interim depth for the next two or three years while they hash out their, uh, you know, their minor league development and their scouting and whatnot. But yeah, I, it's, I mean, it's, it's a good starting place. In terms of the bench, it's, it's still a pretty weak bench right now. Um, if JD is your first guy off the bench, then it helps a lot. If Martinez is your first guy off the bench, that's an okay first guy off the bench to have because he can swing the stick a little bit. Um, you know, if there is a DH, it gets a little more complicated. I think especially if there's a DH, then if he's a bench guy, you definitely really need a defense first center field type guy. Because if you're in like the eighth inning and there's a tough lefty and like you're facing like Will Smith on the Braves and you don't want like Brandon Immo to take an at bat for whatever reason, I don't know, maybe Miguel Rojas is just making that decision. And you put Martinez in. You just call him Miguel Rojas? Luis Rojas. Jesus Christ. We're, we're gonna have a talk about this afterwards oops um <laughs> not the marlin shortstop the mets manager regardless uh you're not gonna want to if you're if you're hitting him for a position player you don't want to have to put martinez in the field so you you need to build up some more depth is what i'm saying um we're gonna talk quickly about bread hand because we have the mailbag that we want to get to this week and we're coming up on a half hour for the episode so we thought maybe we were getting Brad Hand for like a second earlier this week on Friday morning. Ken Rosenthal tweeted out that the Mets and Brad Hand were close. And then other sources came in and said, hold on a second. No, they're not. Um, they're talking. They're not close. 
And then Rosenthal walked back his report and said, okay, other sources are right. I am not, um, which is rare. Ken had a bad day. Ken had a bad day on Friday. That wasn't the only thing he got wrong. Uh, but yeah, it seems like any day now the, the shoe could drop on Brad hand and he's, I would say that it's favorable that he winds up a Met, but the Blue Jays and the Astros are also apparently involved. The Blue Jays are in on everyone we're involved in, and it seems like they're just going to finish second on everyone. Yeah, it's I, – I mean, the more I think about it, like, I think Brad Hand is very good. I was excited on Friday morning when I first saw that report. Uh I really thought it was just going to, because every time it's been like the Mets are deep in talks, like almost 20 minutes later, they sign the guy. Uh, like that's what except happened for James with, McCann, except for James McCann. That one took like two and a half weeks. Uh, but Trevor may happened in a span of like five seconds, uh, which was really exciting. I don't think it's the end of the world. If hand ends up going to the Astros or the blue Jays, like I think that he's as good a pitcher as he is. I'm sort of in the camp of I'd rather just get a pitcher who can pitch to left-handed hitting than get a left-handed pitcher. I understand having the difference, you know, in play, but like between Jerry Blevins, Steven Tarpley and Daniel Zamora, those are both, those are all three lefties that are still like aesthetically different, but statistically, like, I think there are a few right-handers who can actually pitch to lefties better than Brad Hand can, and probably can last another year or two longer as well. Um, Justin, Again, Wilson, Justin Wilson's also on the market. You can get him right. back for cheap. Jake McGee had a, had a nice rebound with the Dodgers this year. His velocity was back up. He's a guy that I would totally be okay with giving a, a one-year deal on. Uh, there's options here if you miss out on on hand. And hand's peripherals are seem to be indicating he might be on a downturn. So, honestly, if you miss out on him and he goes to Toronto or he goes to Houston and he gets crapped on, Sure. You know, I'm not going to cry about it. If he goes there and he's good again, like, okay, sure. I'm still not going to cry about it. If you, as long as you get someone else for the bullpen. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, let's, uh, let's pause here. We're going to do something we haven't done before. And we're going to pause for station ID, (laughs) as they say on the the Mets radio (laughs) uh, broadcast. We have uh, some words from our, from our overlords at Metsmerize that we want to share with you guys. Hey Mets fans, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now that's Mets m-e-r-i-z-e-d online.com and get mesmerized today thank you mesmerized uh yeah go check out mesmerized obviously we are mesmerized podcast um we uh, we do great work over there uh our colleagues are are excellent um Mm -hmm. nothing nothing bad to say about our guys over there uh go check out the site and, and give us some support over on the uh on the website, as many of you probably already do if you're listening to us. Um, so let's let's talk mailbag. Let's talk mailbag, Jack. Yeah. This was uh, this was your brainchild. So why don't you yes. tee it up? 
Yeah. Uh, so we decided, I think pretty like, uh, pretty late in the scheme of things that we wanted to drop this on you guys the last episode. Um, but in the wake of the Mets getting Francisco Lindor, and I think, uh, you know, the fan base responding to that acquisition the way they did, uh, and also Cleveland and their fan base responding to losing him the way that they did, we wanted to, I think, sort of field your responses uh, uh, as to who you remember watching uh, as a Met when, when you first realized that you were in love with baseball, uh, and also how it happened uh, is like an extra credit. Uh, we got a lot of responses. We got a lot of different responses, which is, I think, always the most fun for us. We got some from people that we hadn't heard from before. Uh, also some good friends of the podcast as well. So we'll just dive right in. Uh, this is uh, Latina Lolly at Lollipop103. Uh, she writes, dad was a diehard Mets fan from the start. Having only one TV, we didn't have a choice. Being very young, I remember guys like Ed Cranepool, Gil Hodges, Bud Harrelson, Tug McGraw. Needless to say, I'm old, but been a fan all my life for good times and bad times. 2021 will be our year. This is a sweet one because we don't usually get uh, stuff from before like the 80s. Uh, and that's I think that's always really refreshing. Uh, I think people tend to forget like how endearing that those those groups of players were, even if Ed Cranepool wasn't like a an MVP candidate and Bud Harrelson was sort of like a, a niche uh, infielder that the Mets had for a long time, I think having players that are around uh, through your entire childhood, no matter how good or bad they are, I think that always sort of like lends to your development as a fan because you be, you know, you develop, I think a, a better frame of reference for how long you've been watching. So yeah, that was, was a really sweet one. This was a really cool response. Cause I feel like we didn't actually like realize that we have people that are listening or interacting with the podcast that are, that have been Mets fans for that long. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I feel like, our, if you look at our demographic statistics, you know, our, our primary age range is guys our age and then people that are slightly like a little older than us. So that's people that have grown up with the teams that we grew up with and then people that grew up with like the late 90s teams. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that we have someone here talking about Mets who played in the 60s. That's like really cool. Yeah. Um, and we'll move on. We had some some people talk about the 80s Mets. Uh, you can't deny me at Ryan Smith 6632 Whew. Got that right. Uh, he just, he said straw and doc made me fall in love with baseball. That's awesome. I think my, pair. Dad, my dad would agree with you right there. My dad uh, too. Um, Darren short at white dynamite. That's white with a Y. Uh, Gary Carter first saw him on a show during the off season after 86, maybe 87, where he competed against athletes from other sports in all sorts of random events. My dad told me that Gary Carter was the best catcher in baseball. And I followed him in the Mets ever since. This is one of my favorite ones. Because this is exactly the type of like in-depth story response that like we wanted yeah. uh, when we, when we came up with this prompt, like this is a like very specific memory that this guy has with Gary Carter. This isn't like, Oh, I like Gary Carter. Cause he, he, he's cool. He was good at yeah. baseball. This is like, this is, that's dope. That kind of thing is really cool. <laughs> Which yeah, people I do love that. hearing that. It's, it's always fun. Like reading about like the origin stories, especially for fans who watch the eighties teams. Cause they, as we all know, like had their characters. Uh, Gary Carter was like one of the few straight edges who like, if you were a parent and you were trying to get your kid into the Mets, but you didn't want them to like also get into like crack rock cocaine uh, and the like, you'd show them Gary Carter. Like he was this really like polite, uh, religious, hardworking uh, leader behind the plate. Childlike really too, I mean, he was yeah. a kid. Yeah, he was a kid. 
like Listen, boyish, please. not childlike, as in like immature. Yeah, not immature. He had, he had a boyish charm to him. He was, yeah, you know, totally. Um, um, may he rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, next, we got Ed McEwen uh, at Ed McEwen thirteen. Uh, he, he, he quote tweeted us, he wrote, it was when Ed, Edgardo Alfonso first came up, I really started to enjoy baseball. Then the following year they had Ordonez and I saw magic in the infield with those guys. Then I fell in love. Um, best infield of all time. Best infield ever. Uh, we got a few others from the nineties though, too. Oh yeah. This one I liked a lot. This one was from yeah. Rob at RD Mancini, who Rob is a, has a, um, replied to a couple of our mailbags. First players I remembered by name and reasons. Piazza hit dingers and played catcher. Agbayani was thick with two C's, like me. Derek Bell had a cool mustache and an unbelievably smooth head. Turk Wendell had a dope necklace. Love it. Yeah. yeah. Especially the Agbayani one. I feel like that's yeah, right, right. You know, man after my own heart right there. Yeah, he's cool. Apparently Agbayani's uh, Filipino for hero, which I did not know. But that's really cool. Having a guy in your team in Benny Hero is freaking awesome. Um, all right. We got Tim Ryder, a uh, good friend of the pod, former pod guest uh, at Timothy R. Ryder on Twitter. He says, watching David Cohen do exactly what he wanted on the mound endeared me to baseball in a way I hadn't experienced until that point. Granted, I was a young fan, but a rabid one. The level of locked inness was clearly evident even to an eight year old. Yeah. I mean, it's it is something else watching pitchers uh when you're a kid because you don't i think really realize how much they control the game but in david cohen's case it, it it definitely makes sense he was like it was his day when he was on the mound you knew Didn't, that coney coney had like a, an 18 strikeout game with the mets too i think at one point like 92 yeah. or 93 yeah he, people forget he because he was so good elsewhere too mm-hmm. uh people kind of forget how good he was when he was a young you know young pitcher with the mets yeah um, but yeah, I mean, that's something that we've been lucky enough to grow up with over the past, you know, half decade or so with young yeah. pitchers who are, who are locked in. It's definitely mm-hmm. fun to watch. For sure. Um, Doug at F T L O underscore baseball. Yeah. A little outside the box here, but one of my earliest memories is Jose Vizcaino on the 95 Mets. He got like eight hits in eight consecutive at bats or something like that. And to 10 year old Doug, he thought that was otherworldly for some reason. Eight hits and eight bats, Doug, is not otherworldly for some reason. That is otherworldly. Um, yeah. We didn't fact check that one, yeah. but definitely, definitely out of the box yeah. and definitely definitely one of the, the more more remember some guys-esque responses yeah. we got. Which we love. We love our uh, pinch hitters. I think that's what he did with the Mets. Uh, next guy we got is Vostrumolitis at Vostrumolitis on Twitter. He says, Bobby J. Jones was the first Met player whose name I remembered. So by default, he became my first, my favorite Met in my youth until Piazza arrived. I was so excited when he threw the one hitter in the NLDS. Yeah, this is like, this is, I think, a Met postseason moment that just because they had like the Buckner game and because 1969 was 1969 and Robin Ventura was Robin Ventura, like they have these monumental postseason moments, but they people always forget that this the Mets had this dude named Bobby Jones who was basically like their equivalent to like Dylan G who just like showed up and pitched like a one hit shutout against a Giants team that had like Jeff Kent and Barry Bonds on it, mm-hmm. and that got them into the playoffs. Like, moved them to the NLCS the year they went to the World Series, I think. But, like, that's – yeah. 
and it's Bobby J. Jones because they had two Bobby Joneses on the team at the same time. Yeah. Uh, the other one was Bobby M. Jones. But, boss, thank you for this one because I wanted to talk some Bobby Jones. Always a good time talking to Bobby Jones. Yeah. Uh, Linda Sorovich at Linda Sorovich. Uh, I specifically tuned in to watch Ventura and the 99 infield. He was number four, which is always my lucky number. So I was immediately drawn to him. The Grand Slam single was the first time I got to see my hero succeed on the biggest stage, which leaves quite an impression on a kid. Another mention of that, that 99 infield, that greatest infield ever. Yeah. Uh, of course, it's awesome. Uh, Ventura specifically was the king of Grand Slams. He had the, uh, there was a double header with the Mets where he had a Grand Slam in each half of the double header. Yeah. Um, great player, Robin Ventura. Another really, another really solid answer. Uh, yes, Angles Ghost. This is, I think this is our last like Millennium Mets thing, but we had, he says, my first baseball game ever was Mike Biazza's first game as a Met. I was about seven months old, so I don't remember it. I also happened to be in attendance for most of his big moments as a little kid. The post 9-11 homer, the eight-run comeback versus the Braves, his last game, etc. That's, I think that's like, I've never, I think, heard of something like that. Like somebody literally growing up through their childhood as a very, very, like literally as a toddler, an infant, like having these landmark games that they were at. Like that's, it's a weird like way of, I think, like assessing growth in a person, but no, Mike Piazza was a lot of fun. He, I like just missed the Piazza bus as a fan. I think I started watching like right after he left. So I watched him come back as like a Padre. And then I went to a game where he came back as an athletic, but I never watched him as a Met. That's just like, I mean, that's probably like the best combination of like great player, great acquisition, great leader, uh, great person uh yeah Mike Piazza man best offensive player in Met history probably probably or the next guy who yeah uh, yeah uh, we got a lot of two who we got a lot lot we got plenty of these we'll just mention quickly this one specifically is from Matt Mancuso friend of the pod friend of me uh, at at Matty Cuso he's David Wright David Wright the energy he played with the game always stuck with me David's my answer I think probably I don't really have I feel like I don't have one yeah, I just fell in love with the game. And, you know, I've, again, I've talked about it a lot, but 2009 was my first year as a Mets fan. And that there yeah. really wasn't a lot of good players to uh, hitch on to that year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's that took some digging for me, too. Uh, I think the way I kind of thought of it, because, yeah, I, I my way of falling in love with baseball was very much just like, oh, the Mets are winning and they're in the playoffs. And, you know, there's Wright and there's Reyes and there's Beltron. And that's how it kind of like came on to me. But probably like I, I I always think about it like my most emotional moment and we have one more response that we're going to get to in a second but I it's a little this is a little bit before that era so I just want to hit on it now uh so I was probably I think like 13 when Johan Santana threw the no hitter and that was like the first time in my life that I ever like watched a Met game and was like so overjoyed with something happening that like I literally cried watching the tv like that was probably the first moment where it was like very apparent to me that I had this borderline unhealthy relationship with baseball where like, I just cared way too much about it. So I think my answer is probably Johan Santana. It also helps because, uh, you know, I had, I think my moments when I did play where I was in my happiest moments and my most intense moments were when I was pitching. So I kind of have like a, I think I kind of, I don't relate to him because he's, he should still be on the Hall of Fame ballot. Like he's, he was that kind of player, but I, I do really appreciate him in that way. 
And I owe him for that moment because that was huge in my growth. But we got one more. Uh, we got two responses for this one. I was shocked that we got more than one response for this, but honestly, I'm I'm here for it because I kind of here for it too. I kind of agree with them. Like, yeah, he this player was like one of the first players, probably the first player in my mm-hmm. you know life as a fan that was like a young player. I was legitimately excited for. Yeah, uh, and that player is Ike Davis. Yeah, Ryan at Pladino Sore. Said Ike Davis in 2014, hit a walk-off Grand Slam. That got me into baseball. Uh, and then Chris, the glasses, sweater guy at the sweater guy 98. Another another kind of front of the pod. Great um, follow. Go follow him. A little bit out there and probably isn't my fa- my first favorite player, but when I was uh, but I was always a huge Ike Davis fan as a kid. I liked that he played first base and was a quote-unquote power hitter. I remember that spring training in 2010 when he hit like 400 and the anticipation for his MLB debut. Chris didn't mention this next part. I'm mentioning this next part. The yeah. over the, the dugout catches. Those yeah, so you cool. have to mention that. Those were so cool. That was like a glitch in the system, watching that when you're like 11. Because it's a young Met player coming up, which like at that point, if you if you started watching like 2006, they didn't have a single prospect that came up and like made you feel anything. Ike Davis flipping over railings, hitting baseballs onto the Shea Bridge right before he got Valley Fever was like a very specific memory that like, I really, really enjoyed. And I was at the I was I was at the game. He had his you first were at it at the at the game. He had his first home run, not his debut or anything yeah. like that. But the, it was against the Braves. Mm-hmm. I think I was there with my mom, and the Mets won that game. I remember. I think K Rod struck out Nate McLeod to end the game. Just one of those very niche memories. You just kind of yeah. remember the instant moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and he hit a freaking bomb onto the Shea Bridge for his first career yeah. homer. Um, you know what? Honestly, Ike might be the answer for me because Ike was the first kind of player I was like excited about coming up, and. uh Man, it's a shame his, his his career got derailed by a couple of really crappy, uh, you know, injuries that might not have might probably shouldn't have happened. The Valley Fever thing yeah. is like one in a million, and then the uh, that broken ankle in Colorado really screwed him up for a while. Yeah, because he was having a monstrous season before that happened. He his OPS was like over a thousand, and he was breaking out for sure. Yeah. And uh, on that note, now that we've you know gone through all these mailbox mailbag responses, let's uh, let's remember some guys and get out of here. Mm-hmm. All right. You this is the first want... time I've ever made it this far without knowing my guy. So I'm just going to shuffle the gears for a second. Think Neutron. Think. Would you uh, like me to go first? My guy is. Yeah, you go first. You go first. I got to think about this. Okay. Okay. Um, John Lennon. John Lennon. John Lennon, who's still only 36. Let's bring him back. Yeah. He's How, a, uh, he's is a, he a Long Island guy? I feel he like he is. He's yeah. from Long Beach, New York. There you go. He That's went it. to uh he went to an, a local college, Siena College, drafted by the Nationals, played for the Nationals for for uh you know a number of years, then had a year in, in Philly. And then um he's a he's got a career winning percentage as a New York Met of a thousand. He's one and oh in five games with a fifteen point seven five ERA in five games. And he Yeah, but win. those wins though. Those that wins. win though. He's got the wins, dude. Uh, only four innings pitched. He gave up seven runs in those those four innings pitched. He finished three games. Not bad. So kudos to John Lennon. Uh, John Lennon, by the way, when he was playing his agent, mm-hmm. Brody Van Wagenen. Mm, yeah. So I'm, I'm shocked we didn't bring him back. I guess his career had been over at that point. But, you know. Yeah. That, uh, that wouldn't uh, be the A member first. of the early part of the 2014 Mets was John Lennon. Yeah. I, I think his uh, – I think he pitched on opening day and like, like 
didn't he give up like three runs and like extra innings or something? Like, I think that's one of his games finished was literally like a, it might not have been his runs. I don't know. It, it would take us a while to get into the technicalities of it, but that's a good one, John Lannon. Um, well, I got my guy. I'm going very recent for this because I just forget, like, we forget guys sometimes, but I'm going to bring one back and remember him. Remember Brian Dozier? Remember when Brian Dozier was a Met? Yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, pretty recent, wasn't it? It was this year, and it lasted about, like, two weeks. And I don't think he got – I think he got, like, one hit. It wasn't great. Uh, I just remember when he was a national, he had, like, a streak against the Mets. He was, like, 0 for, like, 45. And then, of course, he broke his streak by hitting, like, a go-ahead home run in the eighth inning because that's what happens when you're a Met fan. But – he showed up to the, you know, to the Mets and went like oh for his first like eleven or something. I don't know, but I always forget that Brian Dozier's a Met. I pulled the stats up. He wound up going. He wound up only going two for fifteen as a Met, um, yeah. with uh, no extra base hits. So he he was terrible, and even his defense didn't even look that good. Like he was so bad, he yeah. looked terrible. Every at bat he took, he looked awful. Yeah, he kind of fell off hard after he was with the Twins. That was. It was weird. Some players really just like do really well with one organization. And then as soon as they leave, it just kind of like. He hit 42 homers one year. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. That's so crazy. He hit 42 dingers one year. He wasn't a big dude either. No, he's a a 5'11". There you go. All right. So, you know, there's, there's, there's hope for all you short Kings who are not quite six feet out there. Height doesn't measure heart. Remember that. Absolutely not. All right. That's a good episode. Yeah. So let's, let's, that's a good place to put a pin in it for this week. Uh, we got you for about 50 minutes and we'll see you next week. Mets fans. It's been a good week. So hopefully next week we come with you, come at you with a, uh, with news of a, of a free agent signing. That's not Jose Martinez. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps a, a Springer, perhaps Brad hand, maybe even a trade who knows what could happen in a week's time, but for Jack Hendon and all our colleagues at Mets Marized online, I've been Sam Lebowitz, 20 episodes in the books. And Mets fans, have a pleasant good evening. Mm-hmm.